listening to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. I'm Tom Hammond, co-founder of UserWise. And today, I'm really delighted to be with uh, Rena McKeith, uh, who actually is the first artist that we've had on the podcast today. So we're going to be dwelling into the wonderful world of art and, you know, everything that uh, a product person should be aware of that's kind of going on beyond, you know, behind the scenes as you're creating those great features and things. So, uh, Rena, welcome. Uh, would you like to just kind of take us through a little bit of your background and, you know, what, what's your story? How'd you get into games? Sure. Well, thanks very much for inviting me on. And it's a real pleasure to be here representing ours and hopefully the first of many artists you have on your podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I had a pretty direct route into games. I was a huge gamer um, ever since I was a kid. And I really liked you know, playing those sort of early PC uh, games. So, you know, I had a PC in the house from an early age and really enjoyed them. But when it came to you know picking a career, um, I really enjoyed drawing, obviously, as an artist, and I liked really stylized things. And at the time, it seemed to me that games were going in a more realistic direction. Uh, so I specialized in animation and went to university to study animation and started working in the animation industry in Ireland. However, when I got made redundant for the first of a few times, uh, as you might expect from a games career, um, I started looking around and I found that there was a company called PopCap Games who had an office in Dublin. And I really opened my eyes to the opportunities that there were in games beyond the sort of AAA games industry that I, you know, I consumed as a gamer, but hadn't really seen any games that looked like the kind of art that I like to draw. Mm-hmm. So when I started in PopCap, this was uh, a longer ago than I would really like to say, but we were doing J2ME games and we were porting uh, games like Bejeweled and Peggle uh, to uh, J2ME devices. So it was very early mobile game development at that stage. I like to say to the, the young artists these days, oh, you don't understand. Back in my day, <laughs> we didn't have transparencies in our PNGs, you know, a sort of a, when we were trying to squeeze a the game onto such a small device and such a small screen. Yeah. But it's real trial by fire and kind of getting into the mobile games industry. And I've been working in mobile games as an artist and then a lead artist and an art director ever since. And I've had the pleasure to work uh, in obviously PopCap, Wooga, Rovio, King. And now I'm in a new startup called Trees Please Games as the art director. So that's been my journey. Well, that's a, a pretty stellar journey. So, you know, going from from Kings to, to Trees, please. What what brought you there? You know, why why the change of pace? I think, you know, I, I say sometimes that you can tell what stage someone's at in their life by the kind of things they post on Facebook. And there's, you know, the the bits when your people are you know are posting about uh, you know getting married or buying a house. And then in a game developer's career, there's the point where they go, and now I'm going to found my own company or join a startup. And I feel like I've got to that stage in my career. Uh, I think for me, it was about, you know, you're working in a large company and you have all the benefits of these larger companies and, um, and you learn so much. And I, I was really glad of my, my years in Rovio and King and, and Wuga, but there came to a point where I felt that you're you're limited by the hierarchy. You get in, in the larger the company, 
is, the further away from either the product you are or the decision making. And, and that's a natural sacrifice you make by being in one of those big companies. But there comes a point where you really, you know, for me in particular, as an art director, it's very difficult to say goodbye to the product. That's what I'm there for. I want to make games. And at the same time, I want to be in the place where I can make decisions and influence the direction of the company. And you just can't do that in a big company. It's not reasonable to do that. So I was uh, talking to um, Laura Carter, the wonderful CEO of Trees, Please, and the founder. And, and she was talking about her mission. And it's, a, it's an incredible opportunity. She really wants to create games which are not only fun and engaging and inspire audiences, but also do good in the world. And it's kind of hard to turn that sort of mission down. Um, this is something I feel very passionate about myself and it's a chance to really start something new. And um, I always feel, and it can sound a bit trite, but I always feel if you're not learning, if, you, if you're not evolving, if you're doing everything you've done before, you're limiting your opportunity to grow and develop. And for me, this is a, uh, the next step and I said you don't want to get too comfortable like I like being a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> in my role and uh, this is a great opportunity to do that absolutely well you you'd be surprised by how many people in the games industry do have that like secret entrepreneur like I want to start my own studio and just have <laughs> you know creative access over everything um, yeah and then the reality strikes <laughs> and you realize oh gosh I have to pay the bills every month okay <laughs> Yeah, it's this interesting dichotomy where like you have so much fun and then it's so awesome. And then, you know, you have a remote employee that lives in some other state and you get all these threatening letters for like 57 cents because something doesn't quite match from the state and they're threatening to shut you down. And it's like, what is going on? Uh, <laughs> I feel like there's a great story there. <laughs> there is a great what? story. Yeah. Don't let anyone work in the state of Washington. <laughs> they're <Right>. awful. <laughs> But I could get you some government memes and stuff, but, you know, it's a fun dichotomy. And, and I think a lot of people do have this like entrepreneurial spirit where like you just want to be able to create things. And I think the gaming industry as a whole attracts people that mm -hmm. just have like a, a creative mindset where like, yeah, I can I can build a great business, but it you know, games are, are more than just building a business, right? Like it, there's all these different elements that go into it. Um, and actually, speaking of those elements. Um, uh, so, so we have a lot of product people, um, that listen to this podcast. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, I think oftentimes, especially as you get into larger companies, like it seems like the art team and, and the product team kind of gets farther and farther away from mm. each other. Um, and so, you know, thinking about it, like, let's say I'm a relatively new product owner, or, you know, maybe I just you know, went from being a designer to a producer or something like that. Like, what are some things that you think would be important for me to know about, you know, working with the art team? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'll save my question after that. So yeah, what, what do you think <laughs> I should, uh, <laughs> what do you think well, I should know? Well, I think, I think there's the main element of friction, I think that often arises between people who come from say an analytical background or, mm -hmm. or, um, want to see game develop, development in an analytical mindset, which is incredibly useful and important and we need that in our game development teams. And then we have people who in general are coming from a creative background, be it uh, game design or art. 
And sometimes you can have this tension when it comes to actually developing the product. And you're smiling because I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and it's about understanding the value of both and where they fit in the pipeline and the process. Um, it's something I remember realizing quite early on is when I was at a I was in an induction and they were talking about the, the role of testing and the role of analytics and how important it is because it, it encourages you to challenge your assumptions and how sometimes your assumptions can be wrong. And they were giving a couple of examples of, uh, of analytics tests that they'd run and they'd ask people to sort of move to the left of the room if they think one answer, A, B, test like A, one or, and move to the other side of the room with B, one. And what they found, oh, and then they sort of use that to explain the role of analytics and uh, in product development and feature design. But what I noticed was the more experienced you were, the more likely you were to be on the correct side of the room <laughs> in, because you're experienced and you understand, you can anticipate the results. This is doubly important when you're doing something subjective and creative like art, because there are aspects of art that are very difficult to test and very difficult to approach in an analytical way. The way I think about it is that the fundamental role of art is to support the game mechanics. That's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to speak to the players through art, trying to help them understand why this game is great, why this feature is exciting. And at the same time, obviously inspire them to come and play the game. So we have play sports game mechanics and acts as a uh, hook and a marketing for the play. And that sounds like something we can test really easily. But the issue is that every company is testing. And if every company tests the thing in the same way, you tend to get the same results, which means that instead of inspiring your players to this great, exciting new art that you're creating for the game, what you're actually doing is what I like to call blandification, which sort of takes your idea and blands it right down to a very sort of mean, right? Because the art, whether this be for a feature or a character or a game, has to have a combination of sort of familiarity, which is comfortable. This is if you're doing mass markets. We can talk about audience fit later, but let's assume for a moment we're looking at mass market broad spectrum games, which is normally what I work in. Yep. Um, so you're trying to have something that's comfortably familiar. Everyone could go, oh, I understand. But also is inspiringly original, something that goes, ooh, that looks, that looks cool. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the bit about your idea that's interesting is often the bit that players are a little nervous about and may not test as well. So if you're testing things in isolation, it often doesn't test great. And what you get is, oh, well, we'll, we'll do this theme or and then we'll do this art style and then we'll have this story and we'll have this gameplay mechanic. And if you test all those things independently without a holistic understanding of how your game's going to work, not only does it not always marry well, but it also pulls everything down to the sort of mean. So if I was to talk to people who are coming from a product perspective, I think the first thing to remember is to trust your ex- the expertise of your team. They are not, there's a tendency, and I don't see it as often, but I did get this early in my career where there was a sense that 
us arty folk. We're just mad creative types who just like to draw something cool. And we'll like go into our garrison and we'll, we'll paint in, in black and we'll sort of like, I don't know, that we're all kind of high in this sort of creative field and, and we're, we're sort of like, like the media depiction of artists. Um, but in reality, the people, especially if you're an art lead or an art director, the people in your business, they've got there because they've spent years working in product design and they understand art as a product and they understand its function. So you can trust them that if they say, I believe we should do this creative direction and here's why, that it's not because they simply want to draw something a bit more interesting than they did last week. So yeah. trust your expertise and then understand how difficult it is to actually test these assumptions um, in a way that gives you the certainty that you might be looking for because that's just not going to happen. It's sad. I wish, I wish there was a formula where we could go, I do A and then I do B and then it equals amazing art style that's guaranteed success. But unfortunately, that's that's just not the way it works. Well, once um, we figure that out, we'll start our own studio I together. will, yeah. And I'm going to make an absolute fortune. But yeah, no, unfortunately, that's not how it works. Um, so I think it's that. It's getting this sort of comfort in the uncomfortable nature of the creative process that it's you will go like oh I sometimes feel if you're especially in pre-production um if you're not really worried about it working you've probably not pushed yourself far enough you can always pull back a bit that's easy but if you're sitting in a very comfortable place and you're going like no this is probably fine it's it's actually risks lack of market share due to blandness yeah I, I can totally see that. Like, you know, I, following like Candy Crush, you know, I, I feel like there was like a surge of all these kind of like candy like apps yep. and, and things like that with similar mechanics and similar art. And like none of them really did anything. Right. Um, but exactly. You know, I think had they tested that with the audience and been like, do you like how this looks like? Audience would have been like, oh, yeah, I do. Yep. It kind of looks like Candy Crush. It looks really nice. Um, so that's really interesting. Do you think that, and, and I've actually heard people say the otherwise, so I'm, I'm very curious what your take <laughs> is on it, but uh, do you think that the art style can impact important KPIs like mm. your CPI, your LTV, your retention, things like that? Or do you think that it starts with the core gameplay for a lot of those things and the art kind of gets layered on top of that and can like have an impact, but most of it revolves around the central. Mm. The way, the way I think about it is this sort of um, axes and, and it depends, right. And and they're all interconnected. So the, the I always think of kind of gameplay on one axis and then theme or the central story of your world on another and then art style is on the Z. So we've kind of got these like um, axes. And then I like to think about it in terms of familiarity and originality. So if your gameplay is particularly distinct and original and maybe unusual, no one's ever played a game quite like that before, in order to kind of make it a bit more mass market and approachable, you may want to pull your theme and your art style into a place which is a bit more familiar because then people can grok from like looking at a piece of art 
which is what, mm. which is what our marketing is. I mean, the videos help a lot nowadays, but for a long time, it's just single images. Your app store is supposed to try and help the player understand the entirety of your your game experience and make them download it. So, if your gameplay is particularly unusual, you may want to help ease them in with a broader, more familiar art style. On the other hand, if your gameplay is pretty familiar and maybe is marginally different to products that are already out out there, but you're going to need one of the other two to make your game feel distinct and have a USB of its own. And your IP needs a USB. So you'll see this happen a lot. It, it's it's really easy to see this in animated film. I was always like, this is a good example. If you look at Pixar, they tell stories about ro- silent robots falling in love. And they can do that because the art style is familiar enough that they'll capture a broad audience. Mm-hmm. On the other on the other hand, something like Spider-Verse is telling a very familiar story about Spider-Man, but they do it in a way that's visually distinct and that makes their audience broader. However, that being said, you can only ever push these things so far and like your game has to be good. And what can often happen, and this is mistakes I've seen in, in companies in the past where like you test these things independently. And this is what I was talking about, testing independently. And then what you can do is create a marketable piece of artwork that tests really well for CPI. You get great click-throughs, huge audience. And then when they get into the product, there's an inherent dissonance between the experience you've sold through your artwork and the game that they've done downloaded. And that's where often you get really low early day retention because yeah, you've managed to convince loads of people to come to your game, but then it hasn't lived up to it. Um, So when I think about crafting an art style for a product, it's about how do we create an art style that inherently supports the game mechanics um, and a theme that helps, that resonates with that core mechanics that, that feels natural and inspires you in some way. And then you know, package that in a way that people enjoy and and fits for the audience that we have in mind. But you don't, it's very difficult to test your way to that because that's inherently about the game design. Um, And I always think if you can swap out your theme and just plunk another one, then it's probably not integrated (laughs) well into your game mechanics. It's probably not inspiring your game designer. It's probably not explaining an underlying metaphor of what your game's about. Um, I remember when I was in PopCap, they had this great uh, talk about how they came up with the theme for Plants vs. Zombies. And I I love that IP because it's so weird in the abstract. Like if you didn't play it and you try, and this is kind of what I meant earlier about how some of these things can't test well, it's very difficult to pitch without seeing the game. How a game about zombies attacking your house and you plant plants in the way will achieve mass market success. It sounds mad. Crazy, right? <laughs> Crazy. But of course the team had this mechan- this prototype that felt really good where they wanted to create a different kind of tower defense where the towers were kind of fixed in place and had this sort of lane structure and they wanted an attacking, a mechanic that uh, you know, the, the creatures that attack those stationary objects to be quite slow moving. And that's where they're like, well, what's what's rooted in place? Quite literally, well, plants are rooted in place. You don't, you can't dig them up and move them around so easily. So we'll have plants. What moves slowly but has an inherent threat to it? Zombies. 
right? So, so it's not arbitrary. It seems mad, but it's not arbitrary. It supports the underlying mechanics and what was special about what they were trying to do with that. And then they wanted to, and then you kind of look at the tone of it. How do you want your game to feel when people play it? Is it like exciting and intense and loud or is it calm and relaxing and serene is it you know what is it supposed to feel like when you're playing it well the art style of that theme should represent that experience for the most part obviously you'll have dips and valleys but in general if you want your game to feel relaxing it's going to look different than a game that feels intense so to say that we can just change it up and swap it out to me, feels like we haven't done the hard work of like figuring out what it is we're making and making sure the art supports that. Of course, that's not to say that there aren't multiple different ways of achieving the same thing. And when you do that, then yes, probably it's not going to make a huge difference. And when you start testing things, especially when you're like um, doing click-throughs, right? It's like, you're going to get very similar results if the artwork is of a reasonable quality. And often it's quality that starts really changing up those click-throughs. The bad quality art clicks not so great. Good quality art clicks a lot better. And, I, you know, it, it's kind of this. I, I remember once saying, and this is, you know, we were talking about testing. I was trying to convince someone uh, not to test for some themes because I was saying, look, these themes have a large audience. They just do. Like, you know, there's nothing weird about it. It's very relatable. Um, you know, we were talking really broadly about testing something with a fantasy setting or testing something with real world setting. It's like, well, in this generic test, you're not going to get the results you want. It's like asking people, do you like cats or do you like dogs? Lots of people are going to like cats. Lots of people are going to like dogs. There's a reasonable audience for either of those things. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to, I mean, you don't have to spend the money and the time testing that. If you think cats are a good fit for your mobile game, go for it. Lots of people will play a game about cats or whatever. And I think that's, that's, you know, that's the truth because a lot of these, a lot of teams I've worked with, they're not looking to create something actually unique. And therefore most of the tests they run is, it's just not necessary you could you could do the whole art production without running any of those tests mm. and then focus all your your budget on perfecting the thing that you've created and testing variants of the thing you've created rather than try and figure out oh well do do casual match three players you know aged 30 to 50 prefer <laughs> a game about cats or prefer a game about dogs yeah it, I mean, you can, if you got the money, go for it, but you're going to slow down your production and you're probably not going to get a clear result. It's going to be like 0.2% of the difference if you're looking. So yeah. that, I think that's where those conversations about your art doesn't really matter. It's like, I'll tell you, it matters if you were doing something different enough, <laughs> but most people aren't doing things which are different enough to really get that sort of result. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So I've got several questions, but before I get to that, um, let's say, uh, you know, Rena, you and I, and and maybe a couple other folks decide we're going to start our own studio today. Mm -hmm. We want to uh, create mass market games that, you know, can be played by millions. We're also going to save the world, you know, something to get you on board. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, uh, (laughs) you know, 
where should we start? Um, you know, what is the first piece of it? Um, do you believe in the mindset of audience driven development? And mm. if you don't know what that is, I can kind of take you through it. But, um, you know, what is, in your opinion, the the right way? And obviously there's no perfect answer, but like mm. what gives us the the biggest chance of having a successful, you know, game? Oh, that's so tricky. Um, because I've seen it work multiple different ways, right? I mean, they always say, oh, it has to start with a good idea, right? And, and, but there's millions of good ideas in the world. I, like, there's so many good ideas. That's not usually not actually not the hard bit, I think, coming up with a good idea. It's a you know, execution that's challenging. Um, I think the, the first thing any startup should do is decide who they want to be. Who do you want to be? Uh, you know, I, I talk to loads of companies who want to make lots of money and they'll do that by making games and then they'll hire a team to make those games to make them lots of money. Uh, in my opinion, that's the wrong way around, right? I think you build a great team and then you figure out what kind of games you want to make. And then if you're you know, good at it, money will come. Like that's the order that makes sense to me. So I think that, yeah, let's, let's say we get together and we kind of, we're a great team, of course. And we're trying to figure out, yeah, of course, uh, what is it we want to say with our games? What do we want to achieve? Who do we want to be? What sorts of experiences do we want to create? Because that helps narrow the focus right down. Like, yeah, for instance, do we want to make big mass market games? Okay, yeah, we've, we've made that decision. But it's equally valid to say, no, I want to make uh, independent games or I want to make games that say something and it's more about the message than it is about the like big dollars or whatever. Or, or you might say, oh, I want to make niche games that you know have, make plenty of money because we're going to specifically target a very narrow audience. Um, and then I think when it comes to the actual idea of what it is you're going to make, I've seen, you know, I'm an artist. I start with, generally speaking, with the theme in the world. It's just how I, des I design. I use the word design loosely because <laughs> I'm not a game designer. Um, even though I enjoy it, I'm definitely not my craft. And I would be the one who's like, I've got this pitch. It's going to be like this. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's going to be like a game. I'm just looking around uh, about planting plants or it's a game about stacking a bookshelf and making it look really beautiful. <laughs> and, and that's the game or whatever. And I'll come up. Is usually how I start. And the game mechanics for me come from identifying an interesting theme and an interesting world to explore. On the other hand, you know, you can come up with game mechanic first and then start exploring how that's fun and what that could mean and what the theme could be that supports that either work. It's about, I think, the first stage. And this is, for me, the first thing is to, to leave your testing outside for a bit. That's my opinion. It's like to, to kind of, um, give yourself some space to make creative decisions. But, but you can still start that creative brainstorming with the audience that you're thinking about. And I think that's where you're coming from. Like I could say, <laughs> I want to come up with a cool game that resonates with people who, I don't know, let me see, um, really like Marvel films. It's like, what would that need to be like? What sort of, ex can I extrapolate out from the experience of Marvel films or Marvel TV shows to understand what that audience gets from mm -hmm. that experience and then what they would need in a game? What would, they, what would they need from the mechanics? What would they need from the art style? And that's also a completely reasonable way of doing it. 
it just really depends on where you as a creative team get your inspiration. What's important is doing the hard work. (laughs) Finding the starting point, I think, Um, you know, you're just going to have to move that work to somewhere else. So for instance, if you start with the idea like an auteur, you've kind of come up with a cool idea for a game. You're going to have to do all that hard work of understanding what is this game? Who is it for? What could the audience be? What do they want? You know, all that has to be done. If you do that at the start, then you have to do all the other bit. What game do they want? What does that mean? What's the art style? Like, it's just you're just moving those pieces kind of around. Both both pieces have to be done. That's the way I see it anyway. Yeah. So, you know, let's pretend for a second Um I, I think that there is an underserved population of let, let's say Candy Crush players because there's mm. a lot of Match Three players. Um, for sure. You know, uh, is it a good approach for me to go out and interview, let's say a thousand or ten thousand of them, you know, wh- whatever it is, and just like mm. you know, ask a lot of questions, understand like you know, what do you enjoy out of playing games? You know, why do you like to play them? And you know, maybe identify a few different themes. You, you know, maybe mm-hmm. there's a group of them that. Uh, I really enjoy Candy Crush, but I just hate that I'm always losing all the time. And I just wish that I could like have a more relaxing gameplay. Mm. Um, you know, maybe somebody else has, you know, some other things in there, but let's focus on that group for a second. Yep. So, you know, could we say, okay, can we make a more relaxing, you know, match three experience where like we get rid of this concept of lives and we get rid of, uh, you know, this concept of, you know, moves or limited moves or something like that. So it's basically impossible for you to lose a match and it becomes more of like, I don't know, a skill-based challenge or something like, Mm -hmm. can you, you know, beat this level in 20 turns instead of the 30 turns it took you last time? It's probably a terrible idea, but you know, let's say for a sec example that like we, we make it more relaxing and I can just play the game as I will. Um, you know, would that be a good base that I could build upon? And like, where where would we take the art style from there? Yeah. I think, I think that's, that sort of work I find really interesting. This is kind of what I mean about that's inspiring. That creates a problem to solve. Right. And that's, I find that stuff really engaging and interesting. Um, so you're, I think the important bit is to understand, are those people still wrapped up in candy? How willing were they actually to leave? Like if you start, that can be, but this this is more of a business decision. That's where your product heads come in because you're mm-hmm. trying to just strategize. So is there a big enough market really in this right. segment? Um, I, I love doing player interviews. I think uh, especially, I, I'm a big favor of uh, um, qualitative data rather than quant you know i feel like that's an arty thing i like to understand why did they do that thing well do you so consider much, do you consider a survey to be qualitative like even yeah, with like yeah, multiple no, choice questions yeah that's some, that's some people are like expensive. that's quantitative so yeah it's a scale right it's if yeah. you've asked a thousand people but it, for me it's about understanding the motivations and psychology that's why we're that's why we're designers like we're creative people because we're trying to under trying to speak to people through the products we make so you have to kind of be interested in people, I think. When it comes to like you find an underserved audience, I think it's about then, you know, you, cr- you try and understand what it is, yeah, what it is they're missing and why. And can you answer that need? And sometimes there's unsolvable design problems because uh, maybe that audience, what they really want, 
is a paid game <laughs> that gives them that experience, but they're not going to pay for it. So, so can the question comes then? Okay, without these, uh, without risk aversion and with their loss aversion and without certain things, you know, it, it could be challenging to monetize. Again, that's a that's a product decision you have to figure out. I feel like creating the game experience for them that's the easy bit in that sort of circumstance. Because yeah, yeah. you know, we can come up with a really you know, relaxing and beautiful experience that's super chill and has no loss and it's yeah. just about meditative. But you might have to completely rethink your approach to monetization and maybe a subscription. Maybe you're getting to the point where you're almost like um, a product like Cam, where it's more about relaxation and 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 you might need a, a different kind of approach because to your monetization. And I think that's interesting. And yeah. then when it comes to the art, what's great about having that sort of clarity of purpose is that that's what I was saying about we know what kind of game we want to make. We know they're looking for something relaxing. They're looking for something like a break from their busy, hectic day that they feel good doing. And how, how can I give them that through the art? How can I reinforce that idea is for them? How can I make them know that this is a different experience from candy? What does that look like? Um you know, it is something we've I've done in, in com- companies before. There was a product I was working on in, in King where um, part of the design process was to establish that actually, you know, King, everyone's playing Candy Crush. The people who like Candy Crush are playing Candy Crush. So if we're making another puzzle game, we're making them for the people who who don't want to play Candy Crush for some reason. So why don't they want to play Candy Crush? What underserved needs have they got that Candy Crush isn't giving? There's no point in cannibalizing the audience of candy right. by, by serving that to them again. So one of the things I was exploring as well, you know, not everyone's going to enjoy uh, this sort of cute, um, hyper-saturated world. Maybe there's a different puzzle game that uh, has a more... Uh, adult feel to it so that you know we can say this is the game for people who maybe who don't want to look at things which are so cute so what does that look like what sort of gameplay experience will come from that you know do we for the people who are slightly embarrassed about playing their match three on the tubes they want to maybe they want something that feels a bit more elegant or sophisticated or whatever and what does that look like and what does that mean for the gameplay and so on so i think it's that's um like I said, it's about when you want to do that in your process. There's, If you come with a great game idea and it sort of just came to you in the shower, like we can do the hard work of figuring out who that's for. But if you come up with a great audience segmentation that's come to you in the shower, we can come up with a great game for that. That's, yeah. for me, it's about like, uh, yeah, you're just going to move that hard work. And they all have knock-on effects. The advantage of the approach that you're talking about, especially for business is you can sort of anticipate the size before you do the product yeah. development. But if you're a smaller company uh, or as a passion project, you know, often that audience sizing can come later anyway. And, and investing in the, the testing can be a bit um, prohibitively expensive if you could do the, if you want to say, have a quick prototype first to see if the game is fun. You know, a week or two of prototyping might be worth doing before you, you invest in the segmentation. And um, though there's some great tools nowadays, and you know, uh, we've been using an online survey company to sort of get the audience um, 
qualitative data, which I love. Uh, so I found that really, you know, is is amazing. You can just uh, put up a couple of images. They'll they'll ask you know fifty respondents of mobile game players like, what do you think about this? And they'll write little comments about each of them. It's awesome. It's like this immediate turnaround within a couple of hours. I, um, I've been really enjoying it as part of our process. Yeah, uh, things I've learned. If you're interested, people really like purple. If they're really? going to mention it, yeah, it's bizarre. If they're going to mention a color that they like, it's purple. Uh, <laughs> Secrets of Game Development Part One: Consider purple. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, overwhelmingly so I, positive for purple. So, so, so random thought, but um, I, I saw something on social media or LinkedIn or something somewhere where someone was like, you know, which one won? And it was like two different ads for, I think it was like a hyper casual game. And like one had a background and the other one, like the only thing was changed was like one little thing was like pink. And like, there was no way that I'd be able to guess between the two, but the, the pink one had like a CPI that was like half the size of the other. Like, it was crazy. So yeah, maybe getting into those pinks and purples yeah. is, is really the, the secret. <laughs> it's nuts. I mean, I think like that's where you have to um, be a bit open, right? Like, so, you know, I think there's power in that sort of change, right? Like it's, it's crazy, but like defining the hair color of your main character, they're going to be in all the, marketing the clothes that they're wearing could be on your icon your app icon probably going to be in the app store feature page that's really good idea to test that and i'm always in favor of like testing it as long as you don't find yourself trending again to the <laughs> angry screaming man face on blue that every icon was for a while it might be worth <laughs> bandification strikes again but like within reason you want to optimize for appeal if you're not getting the CPIs you're looking for, but, but, and you can get powerful results there by those sort of optimizations. But I think the bigger picture of yeah, cats or dogs, that's where I find it really problematic and making mm -hmm. those sort of big decisions about the, the direction of your game without a sense of how that's going to affect your marketability, not this year, probably, but yeah. you know, at six months, nine months, a year from now, when the your product's actually finished and out there, um, that's usually where where I have more of a problem. I'm not a Henry Ford kind of, you know. If you ask them about what they want, they'll say faster horses. Like I feel like that's missing the value of what that actually said about what people were looking for. Like, yes, it's it's overly simplistic. If you ask a, if you ask a, a player. Oh, you enjoy Candy Crush. What game would you like to play next? They're going to struggle with that sort of question. Right. They're not game designers, but but they might be able to tell you emotionally, like, how does it make you feel when you play Candy? Like, what is it that brings you back every day or, or any game mm -hmm. that they play or they love or like, and then maybe, you know, asking them about other entertainment that they enjoy can be important too. It's like, it's when do they play it? What sorts of feelings that they associated all that stuff and then yeah. saying like is there are the things you're missing or is the things you'd wish that it would do like what what causes frustration <laughs> for you and that's interesting as well and i think that's where the that's where the horse situation if, yeah. if ford had asked them what do you love about horses and they said getting around quickly and what do you hate about horses cleaning up after the horse <laughs> then, okay you know what you really need 
you needed a mechanical version of that that doesn't have to say mess and yeah. as a horse exactly <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's done um so it, and goes you're, faster yeah important you're the modern day henry ford here you know oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's gonna be great yeah <laughs> Love it. So um, I feel like we could talk about this for a lot longer, but I did have a couple other things that I wanted to run through. Um, so specifically around uh, this idea of art style, um, mm-hmm. when you're picking an art style or a look and a feel, um, what sort of thoughts come into your mind mm-hmm. of this idea of a content treadmill? Because I, I oh, do yes. think, I uh, do think that, you know, s- certain art styles, <laughs> while they look amazing, I mean, like let, let's compare Flappy Bird versus Genshin Impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I would yep. assume that, it, let's pretend Flappy Bird actually had live ops and was like, you know, still, still going today. But, you know, I would assume that it would be easier to make new content for Flappy mm-hmm. Bird than it is to make you know, something new for Genshin Impact just because mm-hmm. it's so much more detailed and rich and 3D and stuff like that. And I think, you know, as we're talking about this world of like free-to-play games as a service, et cetera, you know, running companies, running games, like it's an ongoing process. So, you know, what's your mindset in terms of like the complexity of the art? Because obviously you want to give them a theme that is approachable and I like it and I, you know, it's good, but it can't be too good otherwise that's just going to slow down how fast we can actually create that content well it gets even more tricky because there are art styles which are expensive but familiar not just to you but to the say like an outsource partner where they're very comfortable making that sort of artwork and you can have a simpler appearing art style but it's more unusual or has kind of awkwardness to it and takes people a while to get up to speed um so, for instance, I worked on a Futurama game, and Futurama's art style is is obviously 2D, flat, hand-drawn, and you'd think that that would make it quick to produce. And yes, but there's, like, specific nuances to that style. If you don't get them right, it doesn't look like Futurama at all. It looks wrong, and it's, you have to get it redone. And in our case, um, the Rough Draft, who's the IP holder, uh, they were really lovely, actually, to work with. It's not that, but they were obviously very protective of their art style, had to be right, Mm -hmm. understandably so. And for us, it was expensive if we got it wrong. Um, So so that's another thing you have to bear in mind. But I think the the important thing for me um, is that you have to be able to create your content faster than your audience will consume it. If you're not creating your content faster than your audience will consume it, you are always at risk. Um, and that is includes if you have a buffer because you don't actually have a buffer. Let's say you've created a buffer in your pre-production, but you don't have a buffer when you're actually creating it because either you're creating it at the same pace that your audience is consuming it. Therefore, if one of your artists gets sick, you're eating into your buffer and you're never getting that back, which is insane to me. Or you're creating it slightly slower than your audience is consuming it. And that's just unreasonable (laughs) like it's not gonna happen so so you have to assess it like um so it's very important for me you know you think about your company and the the, how much money it has because usually that's the thing that's going to cause you the problem you know can you outsource this content effectively um and at this pace required that you can do it marginally faster than your your audience is going to consume it um so that's something you can 100% you need to take into account when you're creating your art style. Uh, 
and and your the content treadmill of your game like if if an update requires for instance oh like you know one new background three new characters and a bunch of you know alternates and consumables and bespoke pieces because your events don't work without right giving the players some something new interesting thing, yeah yeah um then then that's i mean that's the core of your game and it's a challenge you have when i was working in king i was working on a product called candy crush friends and it was really interesting because it was looking to explore a new you know a candy crush but now with um a character collection mechanic and um costume mechanic for those characters that we would give out as part of live ops and it had 3d characters in a 3d world and and so on so obviously that means that the art for Candy Crush Friends was more expensive to produce than the original candy. And because the gameplay is designed around consumables and collectibles, or not consumables, collection, Mm -hmm. then as soon as the collection peters out, you fundamentally change the audience's understanding of what progress means. Because up Mm -hmm. until now, they've been progressing through collecting. And if you can't keep feeding that collection, you, you would find you don't even have the same retention that the original candy would have where they never set up that precedence in the first place. Right. So that's a really interesting thing. Like, of course, you can make a, a stronger retention with these progression matrix of like kind of a strong collection, but without fun- keeping on uh, funneling that, um, then you have trouble. And so what I was tr- doing, and, and this is kind of, again, conversations I would have with people, there's... There's nothing, when you do 3D artwork, you can create quick iterations that feel very impactful, but are not as expensive as obviously the original 3D character. You can do new skins, you can do new animations, you can do all sorts of things. You can repurpose things very quickly and effectively, but only if you design your pipeline in that way. If every new character you do is bespoke, if every new environment you do is bespoke, it's going to be time consuming and even more time consuming in 3D than if you've just done it in 2D. But if you do it in 3D and you set it up in a way that I'm going to do like 15 color alternatives for this, then you're sharing the animation across all those things. You can you don't have to create endless sprite sheets. You know, it can be effective in another way, but you have to actually assess it and do it. Yeah. So you, you have to have like a planning day each week you to, you know, go through planning. the spreadsheets yeah. and make sure you're doing the right thing. I, I just, yeah, exactly. Art directors have to have to budget. We have to do plans. <laughs> um, it's it's hard. And sometimes it's challenging to do that sort of work early on. Um and you can, and you can find yourself, yeah, picking picking a direction based on early hypothesis of what your game's going to be about. And of course, through conceptual development and production, maybe your game is shifted, especially when you get into live ops, and then you're suddenly like, actually, I have to create lots of content around this, and the art style I created originally for this is now stretched to, yeah. to handle this. So, so um, thinking but, about live ops a little bit, I, I feel like a lot of it is like the, the time-limited events or offers. Um, so here's something that I've, I've seen a lot of people kind of struggle with, and I'm curious if you have any recommendations on it. Mm. Um, let's keep it simple. Um, and, and let's say I want to have a new 
time limited offer. Um, that's going to be like a bundle pack. That's going to, it's like an Easter offer that goes live with my Easter event. Um, mm -hmm. so as you know, the art team, I say, okay, you need to make this offer. Um, it's got to have these things here. Uh, but obviously since we are doing mass market games, it's got to be localized too. Um, mm -hmm. so I've seen some game companies kind of do it this way where they kind of put that onto the art team and they say, okay, just make me 60 different versions of this with the translated phrase. And I just like upload the PNG and that's how I do it. Um, I've seen other folks that, you know, try to have the image and then we'll like append the text like programmatically on top of that, which sometimes works sometimes is a disaster depending on how the translations and things work. Um, mm. Do you have any recommendations on like, what is the right way to do localization along with the art creation, because I think it kind of goes hand in hand because, it, you know, you got to give them the right experience and, mm. you know, we can't just neglect, you know, players in Germany because the words are a little bit longer or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, I would always, I prefer to go for the, you know, do the image and then do the text strings uh, and then the, the text strings are fed in from, usually a spreadsheet um, and then it just it, you know choose choose the relevant language per um, per uh, per build I mean this is lots of advantages not just in terms of production because obviously you only have to create one image and export it but also in terms of package sizes because obviously those if you have to you know show all 60 if it's time sensitive it's probably done been done over the cloud anyway but um, for your core game, you will have made this system. Like, there's no way you could store, you know, all these different variants. You're probably going to have it in yeah. your game anyway, so you may as well mm -hmm. use it. Um, what I think is interesting about kind of what you're talking about is, is and it's sort of related to localization, is actually what I think of as globalization. You know, we like, sometimes we have this idea that um, what works for one, like the things are universal, when they're not, um, that, you know, we're talking, let's say, I think you mentioned Easter, was it, or something like that? Yeah. Like, you know, Easter Bunny is not actually universal. It's specific and local. It's just that we think of it as universal because, <laughs> yeah. you know, we've grown up with that and we think, oh, everyone knows what the Easter Bunny is, but the reality is that's not the case. It's all about the chocolate, really. It's about the chocolate, but it's, it's, um, Obviously, not everyone in the world is, is yep. um, celebrating the same things at the same time. And we should think about our games in a much more global context and start exploring. And this is something we did in, in Candy Friends, where we started really looking at um, our game in a much more global context. Of, okay, like we look at the calendar upcoming and then see which... Um, which events can we celebrate that are more global uh, and specific so um, to particular regions? And, and thinking about it in that way actually allows you to be you know, thinking, okay, well, maybe maybe we are showing different images to different locations because it's it's more relevant to them. You know, we're not going to try and show something that really is only uh, European and North America to uh, other nations outside of that who, you know, just maybe just not connecting to it emotionally for various reasons. Um, so that's the thing. I just, I feel like when it comes to text strings, it's it's a normal UI practice to make sure that your, um, we always call it the like very, 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 very long name text string. And, and German is a really good example because the way that they don't um, tend to compound uh, nouns and then into like ever increasingly long nouns because they don't use 
spaces for washing machine, it's washing machine, no or better. Um, so I think it's always important to stress test your UI with the longest word you can think of. And it's a fairly easy thing to scale texts based on character length. It's not perfect, but I think a lot of what we do in game art is about balancing efficacy and perfect and visual design with time investment and you know hardware requirements and memory so it like you can never make if you want to make a game that works across 60 languages the reality is there will be some languages where maybe the text is a bit smaller than you'd like or other languages where the text is sort of floating and there's a lot of empty space because the character strings a bit shorter or you know you have to change fonts because you're using simplified chinese and you know, the font you wanted wasn't available in simplified Chinese or traditional Chinese. And, and that's just part of it. And you do the best you can, I think. Yeah. Uh, but like, I'd rather do that than not support the languages. Um, and I'd certainly rather do that than ask my artist to export 60 <laughs> variants. Of I, I like, was kind of floored when I heard that they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we do this. I was like, what? <laughs> I think I think anything that's manual and specific to an, to one person is much more likely to have errors yeah. as well. So you know a lot of what I'm trying to do in the art pipelining process is reduce um, reduce error rates of that sort. And I think that you know you can take a glance at a spreadsheet and notice that say Polish hasn't been filled in. And you can actually have scripts that will check that make sure that every language has each cell is complete. Whereas if you're asking an artist to manually um, input different text strings into their PSD and then export them out as images, even the best artist in the world is going to, it's just prone to failure that one of those assets will accidentally be labeled Polish, but is actually exported and um, check or something. for instance, and it's, I think that's just the nature of it. And I try and remove that sort of chance of error person. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I love that. So I, I know we're about out of time here. I feel like we could keep going for another hour. This has been so much fun. We'll definitely I had have a blast. To Thank you very much maybe, for inviting me. Maybe have you back. But uh, I do have, you know, one last question. Since this okay. is the Mastering Retention Podcast, of course, you know, what's uh, one you know, tip or trick or tactic that you found over the years to help increase player retention? How do you keep players around for longer? Wow, that is the million dollar question, quite literally, right? That's what Indeed. <laughs> um, I think it's about, for me, what I've realized over time is like, it's very important to see your game as as a lifetime product and you know think about it in terms of like what are they doing on day one what have they like what are they learning i guess what are they learning on day one about your game what are they learning at day seven what are they learning at day 60 that they didn't know at day seven what are they learning that's different at day 100 that they didn't know at day 60 and if you can't give me that if you can't tell me what's fundamentally more interesting about their experience at day 300 than it was at day 100, then you're probably going to have problems with your retention. I think like too often we look at our games about onboarding and we do so much work about how we onboard get people into the experience and we, and the learning uh, ramp for the player kind of peters off and we don't give them new things to 
to try and learn and grow as they get further down in, in their experience. But if we can think about this much longer term, for me, it's, it's really interesting and exciting and it helps with attention. Always remember, what's different about day 600 than day 100? That's the way I think about it. Love that. That's fantastic. I think that blends into a lot of stuff that I see in game design, at least in the early stages of game design. Yeah, I'm playing a game. The next day I come back, I unlock a new feature. Oh, it kind of changes everything, but it's still kind of the same. You know, day seven, same thing happens. But after, you know, day 14 or whatnot, they're kind of like, well, they're just going to be a long-term player or not. And then, you know, maybe we slap on some live ops events, but there's really like nothing new that we're necessarily teaching them and stuff. So I... Mm. I love that. I think that's a fantastic way to, to think about it. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And uh, yeah, I'm more than happy to come on again if you ever feel like chatting, shooting the breeze about art, all things art. And Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Rena. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk soon. You too. Bye. <laughs> Bye.